but Tom Brady turned the lights on at the Patriots facility for 23 years. But on Sunday, he went out like he was the best quarterback in the NFL, and that's how he played. So that's what I mean by humility and confidence. It's the humility to know that you can always get better and you're willing to do whatever it takes to continue to get better. But when you're put in the position to perform and execute, you have the confidence that because of that practice, because of that commitment and work ethic, that you're going to perform and execute and, and do your job. And I think that's when I, when I say the combination of humility and confidence, that's what I mean. And, I, and that's a hard mindset because it's easy to get complacent, especially in sales, because you do have good quarters, you do have good years, but you can always get better. And, and there's always you know, someone better. There's always someone better. And then on the other side of that, you also have really bad quarters and really bad years, and we've all had them. And you have to approach that next quarter or that next year with the confidence that it isn't going to happen again, right? Because if you don't, then it's going to be a real, going to be a real rough ride in sales. So, J.R. Butler is the CEO and founder of the Shift Group, and in our interview, he covers a range of topics, including the balance between talent and coaching, personal drivers of success, and practical leadership strategies. And during our discussion, we also touch on the transferability skills of sports to sales and highlight the importance of effective coaching and continuous improvement. Throughout the conversation, JR's personal anecdotes and insights offer valuable insights for listeners who are pursuing a successful career in sales or sales management. All right, JR, I know you're a hockey guy, but I got to get your uh, feedback on some football news. You're uh, a native in the New England, Massachusetts area. <laughs> yeah, you know where I'm going with this. And I, I have a couple twists on this. So hold on one second. So Everyone, we're recording this podcast. Today is Thursday, January 11th, 2024, and the world just found out that Bill Belichick is no longer a New England Patriot coach. He's out after 24 seasons, 17 AFC championship titles, with 11 of those being in a row, which is an NFL record, and six Super Bowl titles. Again, I know you're a big hockey guy, but I, I know you're probably a New England fan as well, or at least... I mean, you're 45 minutes away from Foxborough, so I'm sure it's just like in the air at this point. So as a native, I'm sure you're stunned. What's up? What are your thoughts? Uh, I I'm a, I consider myself a football guy too, Derek. I, okay. I was a captain of my high school football team and I football was probably, I was probably a better football player, believe it or not, than a hockey player. Um, but yeah, Patriots fan, ride or die. I've, I've since the the old days, since we were terrible. Um, gotcha. So okay. Fox Pro Stadium, you know, Pete Carroll, like you name it, I was there. Bill Parcells. There's there there's it's it's a controversial topic in New England is is Brady versus Belichick, probably right. everywhere. Right. My family is split down the middle. Um, my brothers are Brady guys, me and my dad are Belichick guys. And this is a this is a very sad day in in our world. Um, I get it. I understand why they had to do it. Um, I kind of I mean, expected yeah. it, but mm -hmm. it's it it hurts. Um, I think you know I'll he'll always be a patriot to me. And and the I mean you just you just talked about the last twenty three years that we've had with him has been absolutely incredible. I owe him. We all owe him so much. So much fun time. So much celebrations. Um, so I'll, I'll always be a Bill guy. I'll always be a Belichick guy. And, and I like, listen, Tom Brady's amazing, but Tom Brady isn't Tom Brady 
without Bill Belichick. Well, see, I'm glad you said that. That's that's kind of where I wanted to go with this. And we're going to strike some parallels. We're going to strike a lot of parallels and analogies here in this conversation, folks. So uh, put your your sports cat pap on. For those that don't know what we're talking about that aren't maybe close to it. And I, look, I'm not a big football guy. I'm more of a basketball guy myself. So, uh, But I saw this come out. And I just had to put it together with this interview. The thing that we were talking about with Brady versus Belichick is Tom Brady was their quarterback for many years. Again, Tom Brady came after Belichick, right? So mm-hmm. New England sucked. Belichick came on, retooled, rebuilt, restaffed, did all the thing, new playbook, and they started winning. And Brady was part of that restructuring. Then towards the end of Brady's career, he leaves, you know, there's a rift between the coach, we don't know what it is exactly, but something went down with Brady and their head coach, Belichick. Brady leaves and goes and joins another football team, Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and wins a championship right away. So is it the player or is it the coach? So the, the analogy I want to strike here is let's layer this into sales. That's what we're kind of here to talk about, right? It's a sales consultant podcast. New VP of sales comes into an organization that's never hit their revenue target. He retools, he rebuilds, he hires some A players. One of them becomes an absolute stud, right? And they win all these championships. And then that stud leaves for the competition, okay? Then the company stops hitting their target. Is it the player or is it the coach? Is it the rep or is it the manager, the leader? Like, what is it? Like, what comes first in this? Is it environmental conditions that leaders are creating or is it individual talent? Where do you... If it's 100%, what percentage do you give to each one of these? So so here's the key here's the key thing to think about in that analogy. Tom Brady came in as a BDR as far as we're concerned. Backup quarterback okay. behind Drew Bledsoe, never never took an NFL snap before he was under the tutelage of Bill Belichick. Mm. So in your good story knowledge, knowledge. in your story uh, this rep that 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 uh, VP of sales hired hired that person as a BDR, and then that person under the tutelage of that VP of sales became an absolute killer and crushed their quota, and obviously had a big enough impact that when they left, that quota was gone, right? That 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 revenue was gone. So in that in that situation, in that case, that BDR might have been a great a great rep. Right. Um, absolutely. Like Tom Brady had all the tools, but without that environment, without that structure, without that process and the culture that that VP of sales built, that BDR doesn't become number one, like company changing type of hire. Neither does Tom Brady. So that's like, that's my take and I'm sticking with it. Okay. <laughs> and I like that analogy too, by the way. Here, I think yeah, it's right on. Yeah, and I think that's debatable. I, I think what you're saying is debate. It's arguable uh, it is. because we never know. We'll never know. We never know no. if Brady would have went to the Raiders uh, here in my hometown, my team, uh, would he have flourished under, I don't know, who was it, Gruden at the time or somebody? Uh, you know, would have the same things transpired? And, uh, you know, is it the team around them? Is it the sales ops, revenue ops, the enablement team? Is it the marketing and the leads? I mean, oh, attribution, attribution, right? So, no, yeah. but uh, I thought that would start us off well and set the tone for what we're going to talk about a little bit. So let's go down your track record a little bit. Let's talk about your your back of your football card. 
account manager, start of his career, BDR manager, AE, regional director, which was the first time leading, it looks like, based on LinkedIn, and had a team of AEs, which he grew from three to seven, one of which got promoted to a regional director. So that says a lot about uh, JR's coaching and mentorship. Then he goes into a VP of sales, then becomes a CRO, then a GTM, go-to-market advisor, and is now a CEO founder. This is all in about 15 years. All the while coaching uh, a youth hockey team for about the last 13 years. So you're crushing it today on LinkedIn with an uh, amazing audience that you've built up. And I can always feel the energy. I, when I hear posts, when I hear your, your podcast interviews, it's hype, it's energy. It's You're transferring the enthusiasm. It's working, man. The, the, the flag is, is tall and and, and, and proud. So here's my question. I want, and I want you to like, don't answer the first thing that comes to mind, dig deep on this. When you look back over the last 15 years, all these things you're doing, all this impact that you're having on lives and businesses, what's driving you, man? Like what's at the core and don't give me the, I want to help companies do well. And the, 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 come on, honestly, what happened 15 years ago? What happened in your youth? What happened in college that drove this level of fire in your belly? So I'd say it's it's two things, um, and I'm digging deep here, and I'm definitely getting uh, like you know being honest with you. Um, Appreciate it. I, I'm a I'm a first generation college graduate. Um, my parents are second generation Americans. Congratulations um, on that. Yeah. Yeah, and like my parents worked hard uh, and gave us a, a phenomenal life. We didn't want for anything, but I also uh, was put. Because of hockey, I, I went away to a um, a boarding school when I was 15 years old. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Eighth, the eighth most expensive secondary school in the world. Um, I did not pay for that school. I, I was, a, you know, a, a, a financial aid kid. And I was surrounded by a lot of, a lot of kids with a lot of money. Mm. Um, and... They, there was like just the way they viewed the world, um, the things that they could do that I couldn't do and, and feeling left out a lot um, and not feeling as good as them. Not right. which like looking back, right? It's like it's it's their parents' money. Like, why? Why did I care? Uh, right? but I think but, all of us listening can can understand that. Yeah, that's, yeah. that would so, be tough. Yeah. Yeah. So like, like from a, from a financial drive perspective, Derek, like I don't ever want my children to feel that way. Number one. Um, and I, and I don't ever want to feel that way. Like I made the decision at a really young age of 15 years old that like money was never going to be a reason why I couldn't do something. Mm. Um, and like from a, from a career and a professional perspective that has always driven me and and you know I'm a, I'm a capitalist at heart like I, I want to make a lot of money I think it's a cool combination we have of mission and margin here but at the end of the day like we're I'm, I'm trying to build a really healthy profitable big business and that's always been as a salesperson and a sales leader that's what's driven me is to make a lot of money um is that a competitive drive I'm, I, I hate to cut you off and, don't, and hold your thought there's a second part to this that you were going to say yeah. But is that about competition? Would you say at the heart of it? Yeah. I mean, well, that's kind of the second part of it. Exactly what I was going to say is from like a childhood perspective. Okay. I'm the oldest of three boys. Um, my, my father is a hall of fame hockey coach. 35 years coaching. Mm -hmm. That's right. My little brother, Bobby, um, 
played 16 years of professional hockey, got drafted in the NHL, represented Team USA in the Olympics. Was really, and I asked my dad one time when I was like 27, when did he know Bob was going to be an NHL player? And he told me he knew when he was seven years old. And my dad's a hockey guy, so that's no that's no BS. Right. So I grew up, Derek. The number one only thing I cared about my whole life was hockey. And I had a little brother that was literally better than me. Okay. So like when you talk about like, oh yeah, I'm I'm competitive. Like I would want to beat him in everything that I could because I I'll drink my milk faster than you. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't beat him in the thing that mattered the most to me yeah. or that mattered the most to my father. So like I've always had this like drive to be the best because I've never been the best, you know, even in my own household. Right. So like I think at my at the core of who I am and, and how I operate, like that's what's driving me the most is like and, you know, I've I've worked through this in therapy, if you can't tell. <laughs> um, <laughs> but like but like at, at the end of the day, it's 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 a it's a feature uh, and a bug a little bit with me. Um, but I think like when you talk about that career trajectory and the growth and, you know, driving these teams that I've driven, like that's like being on the top of the leaderboard is something that I, I didn't get to experience a lot as a child, in, even as a teenager. You made up for it in a big way in B2B, but. hundred percent, a hundred percent. And that's, that, that was kind of the, the, the driving force, I think for, for and still is to this day. Like I want to be the best, the 100%, no doubt about it. I love that. I love that. I have a younger brother who's a football coach at a private university here in Southern California. And um, yeah, he, since he was in elementary school, it was always football and it was always the Raiders. I mean, it was, and it was obsessive even then. And so to this point now that he actually is living the dream that he said he would do, uh, it, it fired me up a lot in what I, what I was doing. I'm not going to lie. And like, I was this, you know, tech sales guy. I was having a progressive career and I was watching my brother, you know, finish college, go into coaching and like follow through with his plan. And here I am in this nine to five kind of, you know, doing my thing, making money, taking care of the family. I'm all right. But I had this deeper passion, entrepreneurial ambition inside of me. And so, uh, yeah, I think in some ways, and I've never told him this, I kind of feel like I'm competing with him, <laughs> my my younger, maybe two years younger. He's not as much younger than you. But yeah, it's not on sports because uh, I would say I'd probably still beat it. I would have beat him in football then. No, nah, if he hears this, he's going to give me shit. Anyways, <laughs> let's let's move on. Let's, I appreciate that. And I thank you for being real on that. That 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 means a lot because you know a lot of times we get into some of these interviews and we just want to kind of give that superficial view. Oh, but yeah. at the heart of performance management, at the heart of behavior change, uh, is this kind of stuff. It's being able to tap into those intrinsic motivators that your people have, and how do you how do you do that? You know, and I think trying to get past the layers in a forty five minute interview. Uh, here is is kind of telling, but let's, let's double click here. So one of the things that we want to talk about, as I mentioned, is the parallels between sports and sales. And you've been quoted as saying that the athletes, the athletes have the right balance of humility and confidence. I heard you say that on a podcast and I, it struck me. So I wanted you to see if you can triple click on that. What does that mean? Right balance of humility and confidence. So, when I think about humility and confidence, humility uh, comes from, well, it, it, both of those start with self-awareness, Derek, right? Which is kind of what you're talking about, right? Like getting down into the intrinsic drivers and, and motivations and who you really are as a human being. 
Um, and when I talk about the humility of an athlete, I mean that they know that they can get better. They know that they're not perfect and they know that they need to practice. Right. And at the same time, uh, and, and we'll use Tom Brady since we've already talked about him. Tom Brady knew he's the best quarterback in the NFL, but Tom Brady turned the lights on at the Patriots facility for 23 years. Right. But on Sunday, he went out like he was the best quarterback in the NFL and that's how he played. So that's what I mean by humility and confidence. It's the humility to know that you can always get better and you're willing to do whatever it takes to continue to get better. But when you're put in the position to perform and execute, you have the confidence that because of that practice, because of that commitment and work ethic, that you're going to perform um, and execute and, and do your job. And I think that's when I when I say the combination of humility and confidence, that's what I mean. And, I, and that's a hard mindset because it's easy to get complacent, um, especially in sales, because you do have good quarters, you do have good years, but you can always get better. Um, and, and there's always you know, someone better. There's always someone better. And then on the other side of that, you also have really bad quarters and really bad years. And we've all had them. And you have to approach that next quarter or that next year with the confidence that it isn't going to happen again. Right. Because if you don't, then it's going to be a real, it's going to be a real rough ride in, in sales. So um, that's, that's really like at the core of that humility and confidence combination. That's really what I, what I have in my brain. How do you balance that though, with the idea that uh, sometimes success early breeds complacency? You, you've seen it, you know, you have one good game or we score one touchdown or one goal and we're celebrating and we're getting complacent in sales. Same thing. One good quarter, one good, good year. And we just take our foot off the gas pedal. How do you balance that idea that athletes inherently bring this with them? But we know even in sports that complacency can breed itself. So, I mean, how do you balance that being with it what you just said? I think it's, it's all about structure, like process and systems, right? Like, it doesn't matter uh, at the end of the season if the Patriots won the Super Bowl or not. Like two weeks later, Tom Brady's back in the gym, right? Because that's his process. That's his right. system. And he's going to work that. So like that's a huge part of what we talk about is like your operating rhythm and, and how you're approaching your day to day. You've got to build these systems and processes to continue to get better no matter. And that's what you focus on right? You don't focus on the outcome. The outcome comes right. from the process, from the system. So the way you avoid complacency is you have that great quarter, but it doesn't matter because you're you're going to work the process again because that's why you had a great quarter, right? And we all know salespeople, exactly. we all know salespeople that have had great quarters and great years because of some things that happened and fell into place. Windlock. Yeah, yeah, right? Like, and I, and I always tell people, right, a, a broken clock is right twice a day. If if you didn't get there because you have the right system and process, you just got lucky and you don't make a career off of being lucky. Yeah, the inbound leads were good last year, but, you know, marketing has shifted directions or lost budget and it's not going to be what it was. So you need to get out there and feed yourself. Are you going to be able to maintain that? So, yeah, th this is a topic I feel like I could riff on with for, for, for hours. You know, previously on the show, I've had 
a college football player who turned SDR, turned AE, a former Olympic track and field athlete turned SDR manager and then turned sales consultant, at a VP of sales who coaches youth basketball and wrote a book called The Point Guard Approach, which talks about the parallels of sports and sales. And his name oh, is Jeremy cool. Lehner. Check out that book. But and I'm not firmly on the in the camp that athletes are uniquely qualified and that they inherently you know, transfer these attributes over to sales from sports. Because I've seen myself too many times where I'm working with reps that have a sports background, hired a ton of athletes, and yet they still fall into some of these things that we've talked about, right? So do you really believe that sports is uniquely qualified to position people for sales? Or are there other disciplines that you think could help a person master discipline, practice, all those attributes that we we love to talk about in, in sports and those parallels. Are there other disciplines you think that pr provide that? Yeah. Yes. I mean, I've listened, I'm not delusional to think that athletes are the only folks that, in fact, as you know, we, we work with veterans too, right? So right, like, that's exactly. one that I'm, I'm not going to overemphasize that one because that one is very similar, but like teachers, um, bartenders and waiters, um, Musicians, musicians, actors. Yeah. And you have an art degree, right? So, I mean, artists, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My friends hear that, they will laugh. It was, <laughs> art, it was, it was art history. We called it art in the dark. Um, that's a long story for, for a whole other podcast. Next episode, next interview, next interview. I, but, but my, like, my perspective, and this is not, um, it's not popular, but I, I, but I do believe that sports specifically, there is no better match and parallel when it comes to not just characteristics which is what you're talking about mm -hmm. but in but environment also matters like the environment of playing sports is the same environment as being a salesperson and there is not another like meritocracy meritocracy type environment where you're in a you're on a depth chart um you're being measured constantly and you're, and there's a scoreboard, right? So yes, you can develop all these other characteristics in these other areas. And there, and there's also like things that waiters and waitresses and musicians have that, that athletes don't, but I think yeah. there's no place in the world where you can get used to the environment of a scoreboard and working in a team and this high pressure and, you know, um, being adaptable and being measured constantly like sports. And that's kind of, that's my take. Like I absolutely see the value of a musician, an actor, a, bar, a bartender, a waiter, a teacher, especially, or a coach. Like that's all day, every day. But like the, the exact match between sales and sports is really, really strong. And I haven't, nobody has ever changed my mind on that and given me a better example. No, I'm, I'm with you hundred percent. I think uh, music, not that I'm a musician at all, don't even ask me to pick up an instrument, but I feel like that, and I've been close to it long enough in my life that that is a pretty close discipline. Now you're working on a team. If you're in a orchestra, for instance, right. Totally. And you always have someone on the wings waiting to take your place. If you can't hit that note. And it brings me to my next point about practice. And you've talked about practice in other interviews. So we won't go down the superficial side of this. I want to get into the, the application of practice in sales. Right. You coach a youth hockey team, so you probably practice way more than you have games. Right. 
Oh yeah. So in the application of practice in a sales organization, what does that look like? Because individuals can practice on their own, the Brady effect. I'm in there early. I'm staying late. I'm back in the gym. Let's talk about Kobe Bryant, profusely known for going right back into the, on the court after the game was over and shooting a thousand free throws. It's this individual commitment to practice. Got it. That That's a point. But I really want the leaders and the other consultants on here to take away the application of practice in a sales organization, right? Like, how do you operationalize this in a sales environment? How do you get the, I mean, are there drills that we should be running on a regular basis? I mentioned my brother earlier, and I'll, I know this is a loaded question, so I'll give you a second to talk. I'm sorry to hog the mic. But when we were talking recently, he was telling me about this 225 test. It's a bench press at 225. And that's an, it, the one of the positions that he coaches. This is how he tests the litmus test for these players. The, we want to see what your max is in your freshman year. And then your max by your sophomore year should be more. And then junior year and senior year should pro progressively improve. And so he would always talk, he would talk about how players come back from off season and they're still maxing the same 225 that they were, you know, last season. So now they didn't work on it themselves. Okay. So it's individual stuff, but the, the stuff that he spends time on, and I'm sure you do as a coach is these drills that you're running every night with your players. So what does that look like in a sales organization? What kind of drills should be running? What, do, how do we operationalize this? Because it's, it's not happening enough. Right. So, so I, I, I talk to this, to my team about this a lot. I always say, you know, um, on a, on a bad team, nobody holds anybody accountable, right? On a good team, the coaches hold the team accountable. On a, on a great team, the captains hold everybody accountable. On championship teams, everybody holds everybody accountable. Your accountability, right? yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. And the way, like, the way this plays out in real life, and I'll, I'll use an actual example. I'll, I'll take it from youth hockey into sales. So in youth hockey, we do uh, like historically, you know, the ice is really big, but the actual game that happens is in small areas, right? Like there's little one-on-one -on -one battles that happen in the corner. They happen at center ice. They happen in the slot. And so when you try to, when you're trying to teach young, young, young kids that are coming up in the game, you want to get them used to these small area battles. And there's a, a offensive side and a defensive side to the puck. And what we do is we run a drill in a small area game where one guy's on the offensive side of the puck, the other guy's on the defensive side of the puck and they battle. And then what do you do? They switch sides. Okay. So from a sales perspective, the way I think about that um, parallel is role plays. Like we'll use example of role plays. So typically most companies, what they're doing is the manager is running the role play and the reps are the reps. Okay. What they should be doing is the reps should be running the role plays. One should play the customer and one should play the rep. And the, co the coach is really there to coach, to meet, to mediate and, and kind of drive the exercise. And then they do the exercise. Everybody gives feedback to the rep. Everybody also gives feedback to the customer person that played that role. And then what do you do? You switch the roles. Now, Hey, now you're the rep and you're the customer. So I think like those types of group exercises where your, your, your team is actually the ones that are holding the rest of the team accountable to the, to the messaging, to the objection handling, to the qualification management, 
you know, uh, yeah, yeah. process that, that you believe in, whatever it is, it's, you know, there's so many out there now, whatever it happens to be for that team that, that they've proven works for that technology. Like that's how you create like championship teams in a sales organization is, is you create a culture of accountability where everybody is holding everybody accountable to the same, uh, the same standards, values, and expectations. Um, and that's just like a small example, but I think it, no, it's it, perfect. It's perfect. Yeah. I mean, because role playing is probably the most important practice drill, and we there's a lot of flavors to it that we that we could be doing in, in a B two B sales. So I'll add to what you you said. I I love the fact that you're talking about switching sides, offense, defense, customer by uh, salesperson. Um, have a other sales. So break into groups of three. So one of the salespeople should actually be an evaluator. Yeah. So they have a they have a bird's eye view of both interactions, and then then yeah, giving feedback in a micro setting with those three people, then doing it on a, on a bigger scale with the whole group. But what did, what about situational awareness? What about the the uh, scenarios that play out? Right in basketball, you might have a pass that's coming in from the from the sideline. You might be taking the ball in from under the hoop. You know there might be four seconds left on the clock. There's these situations that we practice and we practice, right? So what are your thoughts on creating scenarios ahead of time, ideally scenarios that are based on real interactions that you're hearing in recorded calls, seeing in email interactions, now taking those where we could have done better, where we maybe lost and we didn't hit all 10 on, on, on our ranking for that call. Like maybe we can take that situation now and use it in a lab setting to, right, practice this. Is that... Would yeah. you be a proponent of that? Is that something you've seen? I'm, I'm just... I I love that idea, and and I think like initially uh, you'd probably have to have the leader like set the tone, like, hey, yeah. you're yeah. you're gonna be the customer, and here's the situation. You're, you know, you got the competitive product, and you're you're a little bit of a jerk. So like right, exactly. go into go and also into whisper in his ear. Here, your competitor is this. The yeah. problem you're having with your competitor is this, but they need to uncover that. Don't just give it to them, right? 100%. And that's the other thing about it. I'm sure you do this in practice. You don't make it easy for these kids, right? Like no. you make it as difficult as you can realistically on what the game situations will look like. And I feel like that's another drop on us in B2B is, is that we make it so easy. You know, they'll do a role play. Oh, that went great. I love how you did this. And it's a love fest. Yeah. When, Honestly, in the back of your mind, like that was terrible. Oh my God. Like, there's so much room for improvement, but you don't want to hurt anybody's feelings and you right. gotta be so that brings me to my next question, which is is it easier to coach, you know, teenage hockey players or adult salespeople? What's easier to coach in your mind in terms of accountability and accepting feedback and all that? Uh, definitely teenage hockey players. Like, <laughs> you know, they're, they're, I mean, first of all, I was a teenage hockey player, so I know exactly okay. what they care about. Like, you know, they're, they're, the kids I coach are like 15. They care about like girls and, you know, <laughs> yeah. like being cool and, right. and they care about hockey, right? Like they want to be, they want to become great. They, they're competitive like you were when you yeah. were that age and want to be the best. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas like on the, on the adult sales rep side, and you've already said this once, but I think it's really good call out is, everybody, not everybody is motivated financially the way I am, right? And and has the same story I do. Um, at the core, there's something there that you have to uncover. Um, and I, I always use the same example, but I had a rep that was, grew up the same way I did and was extremely coin operated. And she's the best rep I've ever had. And anytime we did a deal review, um, 
I would start the, the, I had the deck that I would go through with her and the first couple slides were pictures of Birkin bags. Cause like that's, she liked to buy like really nice stuff. Cause she didn't grow up with nice stuff. And I'd be like, Hey, you know, this, this deal is for Birkin bags of commission. Right. Damn, yeah. <laughs> and now correlate like, you, that real quick. <laughs> you, you'd see her eyes light up like, oh, my God. OK. And she was dialed in on the deal review like, oh, yeah, you're right. I got to go get to this person. I haven't uncovered this pro part of their business problem yet. And you're right. I don't know the timing. OK. Now I had another rep who wanted to be a, a leader. Right. And and that's what they wanted to do. So in those deal reviews, it was like I would say like, hey, listen, you got to look at this deal like you're the manager of the deal and you're not the rep. And you need to ask yourself questions that you think you would ask yourself as a manager. And then those deal reviews were really easy because now they were kind of taking my job and doing it themselves and holding themselves accountable like they were a manager. So like that's just two different motivations of, of human right. beings. And you can't really lead someone until you know what drives them. And that's where it all starts, in my opinion. Yeah, it always strikes me as something interesting that if you watch youth soccer or whatever, hockey, basketball, I mean, I'm talking about peewee stuff. As you progressively move up into the working world, I feel like the tonality, the word choice, uh, just the overall bluntness of our feedback and coaching starts to soften as we be, get older. And it always struck me as something that should, it would almost be the opposite. You'd like want to be kick gloves with the kids, right? And then when you get to an adult, like you're you're, you're 18, you're, you're a grown ass man. Like, let's have this conversation. That was shit. You can do better. Now, maybe yeah. that's a little more aggressive than it needs to be. But my point is, I feel like accountability is held captive a lot of times because of, you know, uh, employment law, uh, the, the current state of our society, uh, you, you name it, there's all these overarching circumstances that make it really hard for a sales leader, a frontline coach to have a frank conversation about performance with underperformers. Uh, because again, it's like, you have to be so kit glove with them. Is that what you find? Yeah. It's and like, listen, like, I mean, I had leaders that were just like mean and, and candidly, like that, right. that, that's how and my I'm not dad promoting was. that. I'm not saying no, mean. no. And that's how my dad was. And I, to be honest, that's how, that's what I respond to. So like works good, right. Yeah, good, right. good for them for figuring that out. Like, I, but I, I think it's the, the real problem is when, is when you drop the candor and you're not honest and like, you can be honest and candid with someone and still, and, and to be honest, that is kind candor is kind. Like that's, you owe that person the truth, um, but you can deliver it in a nice, in a nice way. That's okay. And, you know, 2024 in this environment with all the Compliment laws. And sandwich. I mean, I, I hate to go back 20 years, but is that what we're yeah. talking about? Give them something good, give them the negative feedback, then give them some good again. <laughs> right. Right. You, know, you call it, I, I have a different name for that, but yeah, I'll, I'll go with compliment sandwich. <laughs> hey, this is HR team here, man. You can say what you need yeah, to. <laughs> we call that a shit sandwich where I'm from. Shit there. sandwich. Okay. Yeah. I should have pulled that out. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, I love that. That's again, talking about these parallels. So I'm going to spend three minutes with you no more and i want to do a quick a rapid fire sales hockey analogy challenge with you love it okay. sales hockey. so i'm going to bring up a hockey term and you're going to give me your best sales analogy got it okay first one face off uh that is the the initial the initial call um like where where are you putting the leverage point are you giving the the customer the leverage point of like 
yeah, we'll follow up? Or are you making it so they that they're in a position where they they have to take that next meeting? That you're you're bang on you're pulling the puck to you. Yep, bang on. Like that's literally what I had teed up. It's the initial presentation, uh, yeah. initial contact, whatever. Uh hat trick is the next one. Oh, that's just a like a killer quarter, man. <laughs> three I, deals I in have... a row, three. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I never had, I didn't have many of those. I was a defenseman, but uh, I had a lot of those in sales. Hat trick is a great quarter for sure. All right. Now, again, I have never played hockey okay. myself, so I had to like Google this stuff. So <laughs> I wish I could me. see that. <laughs> Defensive zone clearance. Defensive zone clearance is competing, is is positioning yourself against the competitors without shitting on the competitors. Overcoming it's, objections. Hundred percent. Right? Or it's 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 handling objections before they come up, right? Diffusing like, them. Yeah. Yes, exactly. It's like, hey, you know, uh, I know you guys are using this. They're great at X, Y, and Z. Have you ever dealt with A, B, or C? Right. And it's it's not like, hey, they stink and we're better. It's more just like calling out the gaps and and trying to figure out um, if they see them the way you do, right? So that's kind of again, you're protecting you're protecting the 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 goalie in the net, right? Um, I think that's a good two good points analogy. on that. There's a there's a a book on this that talks about how to get your competition fired without saying anything bad about them. It's called the wedge selling technique. So that's something for you guys to check out. Exactly what we're kind of talking about there. Uh, the other piece is uh, a guest that I just recorded with, Justin Michael. You guys might be familiar with the Justin Michael method. He wrote uh, Tech Powered uh, Sales uh, and has a couple other books out recently. But he has a, a framework that he promotes, which is called Route, Ruin, Multiply. And the multiply uh, part of it is in that initial cold call, you're basically uncovering what they're using currently. But then instead of trying to, you know, pin yourself against that or ask them to rip and replace, you ask them to multiply it, to enhance, to add on, to run in parallel uh, to what they're already doing, right? To, let's amplify what you do. That's great. I love what you're doing there. That's great. What if we were to enhance that with what we're like doing, that. right? And so it's a multiply effect. So, all right, last two analogies. And then I got a couple more questions and I'll let you get back to your day. Slap shot. Slapshot is, I, I would say it's, uh, it's the, it's that closing call. Exactly. We got to sign on the line or what are we doing here? You know what I mean? Like that's, that's on the line that, which is dotted. Yes, exactly. And, and that is that, by the way, was my biggest strength as a hockey player was my slap shot. Cause I shot a well, lot. Well, yeah. And I, uh, this is how well I do my homework, dude. 400 to 500 shots a day this guy would practice in his driveway dad would get home at the end of the day and ask him how did your shots go how did, did you hit your shots yes well how'd you do in your backhand because his backhand was his weak game and so pops was always on him about practicing that backhand so there were no weaknesses in his in his arsenal uh so Dude, you're yes. dialed you are dialed in dialed man. in again. that is a good nugget right there there you go all right last one playbook execution this should be easy Oh yeah. That, I mean, it's the same. <laughs> it's, it's, the same. same. <laughs> it's the same. It's like, you're supposed to be here when they do this and you're supposed to be here when they do this. It's that again, it's easy to understand, but how many times do players miss their route? How many times oh. they miss their spot, their timing. Right. And you know, how many times do salespeople go off the beaten path, do their own thing, freestyling. You're like, what the hell are you doing? That's not what 
the how the product works and so on and so forth. But totally, totally. Thank you And for entertaining me on the sales hockey analogies. That was good. Um, I like that. all right, last couple of questions. Number one, why? Because you talk about coachability a ton, dude. Like it's probably up in the top three words in your vocabulary. Mm -hmm. Why the hell is coachability so, so important? And I have some follow-up questions to this. All right. So why is coachability so important in the sales setting? You have two choices. You can use your own experience and get better, which is great. Or you have the option of listening to other people that have more experiences, multiply that by the number of people you're surrounded by, and you can hear from them what they're doing that's work or what they're doing that isn't working. And you don't have the, the hubris or the um, ignorance or arrogance to, to not take that and make it your own. Um, you're going to miss out. I am who I am because I am the combination of every leader and every colleague that I've ever had in my entire career. Full stop, end of story. I'm the smartest parrot in the room and that is all I am. That's I love coachability that, is a core value for our company, accountability, coachability, and authenticity. That's what we operate on. That's why I use it a lot. Yeah. Coachability, I think, yeah, definitely ties directly to accountability. However, here's my hook on this. I love it. We know managers don't coach. They just don't, or they don't know how. If they are coaching, that's not coaching. That's something else, what you're doing, right? And so how do we bridge the gap here, right? We have a heightened level of requirements for coachability. Every leader talks about this. Every job description talks about it. Managers everywhere are saying, I need people who are coachable. Basically, what I hear in that is you need people who will do what you tell them to do, right? Because you're not actually going to spend the time in some organizations. I think the vast majority, I mean, 20% of leaders probably are doing this really, really well. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you're asking for people to be coachable, but then you're not doing coaching. Bridge that gap for me. Yeah. I mean, I think it... it, it... I think generally, especially the last few years, what's happened is like you get to this like manager level and you think you're above doing what you did as a rep, right? And the to go back to sports, the analogy is like the best captains in the world, the best coaches in the world carry the water bottles to practice and after practice. Like to to really be a coach, you have to you have to roll up your sleeves. You got to get in there with your reps and you've got to like actually do the work, right? So it's not like a review of salesforce.com and like, Hey, I, this needs to be the next step here. Don't do that. Right. It's like, initially you need to be on there with them. You need to be kind of digging in with them. You need to be, whether it's listening in on calls with all the technology now or reviewing those calls directly with them and like, you know, and then showing them that you can do it too. Right. Cause, cause that's, Sales is a little different than sports, right? Like, like I think Bill Belichick's. Yeah, he's not going to get out there and take hits. Right? No, yeah. no, but but I I guarantee you that every player that played for him knows that Coach Belichick wasn't asking them to do something that he wouldn't do himself, right? And that's that's the mindset. That's what your your reps have to feel from you. That's when you're a coach and not a manager. And there is a huge difference. And I'm pumped that you called that out. Absolutely. Um, so that's how I think about it. Carrying the water bottles. Yeah. I'll bring a full circle on my story of my brother as well. Like he was a football player. He played all kinds of positions, running back, special teams, you name it. And so when he gets out there, he can still out bench every one of the players that are on his team. Right. So when we talk about that 225 test, he's up there putting it up like 17 times. Oh my you know, God. these kids are doing it 12, 15 times, you know, and they're damn coach. 
damn, we got to get to your level coach. Right. I mean, that's, I mean, if that's not inspiring as hell, I mean, let's, let's go back to the parallel. Why would an SDR manager not pick up the phone and make some calls? hundred percent. Right? Especially when you're new, you know, yeah. even if you're seasoned, you know what you're doing, you should be able to demonstrate what you're teaching people and look and be vulnerable enough to say, look, I screwed that up and I didn't do that. Well, I could have done better. Now you're getting into, you know, really earning their respect because now you're like, damn, I could have done better. Cause I'm sure Belichick had those moments too, with his team where he was, you know what, called the wrong play. You know, we didn't, we didn't prepare that route. Well, you know, that's, that's on me. Right. Yeah. Um, very good. All right. So in closing, last question, take me back to the inflection point of starting shift group. We already went down your track record and how it's been progressive. You've shared your ambition of building a large and successful organization, but take us back to the inflection point of like building this. Not everybody has entrepreneurial ambitions like that and is willing to take whatever risks I'm sure you took. So what was the impetus? What was, you know, where, where did the idea come from? Well, I shift group as, as it exists today, um, it came from what I, what I, I was already doing, what we do. Uh, I was doing nights and weekends. I wasn't doing it for money. I just was helping hockey players from my network would call me and, you know, JR, you're not that smart. You made a bunch of money. You seem to actually like your job. Can you help me? Right. And, and I did. And I helped a lot of guys, and girls get jobs well before I ever started shift group. So, and, and I got a lot of emotional energy out of it, as you can imagine, Derek. Right, right. So changing lives. Like, yeah. yeah. Like in a small way, it was like, I, I, I really love doing this and I think I can make some money doing it. A bigger picture wise is like, because of the roles that I was in, because of the experiences I had building companies as a sales leader, I spent time in boardrooms. I spent a lot of time around executives and investors and I started to see the fact that like they definitely have more experience than I do, but these are people, and this goes for everybody. These are people that are no, no smarter than I am. They don't work harder than I do. And as a sales leader, I was doing, spending a lot of time, energy and effort building a business and creating enterprise value for those people. Right. And what I realized with the combination of the fact that I think this idea has legs and I can make money on it. I also know that I have what it takes to build a business um, and I'm learning a lot and I mess up every day and it's always a learning lesson, but I know because I've been around the people that have done this and done it to a successful outcome that I can do it too. And I just said, you know, screw it. I'm burning the, I'm burning the boats and I'm going all in on this and, and I'm going to, and I'm going to build enterprise value mostly for myself along with the team that I bring with me. I love that. Well, thank you for sharing that. That's highly inspirational. Uh, a lot of people who are tuning in this podcast are either uh, an entrepreneur themselves as a consultant in some respect in the go-to-market space, or maybe they're a leader thinking about going in that direction and starting their own thing and kind of like I've done. And yeah, it, it can be scary and it can be hard. And uh, what you're doing is tremendously uh, impressive. You know, I think Shift Group's been around for close to three years now. Is that, is that two, about right? Two, two years, years. Just over two years. Two years in February. Yep. Wow. Wow. And 18 employees, it looks like on LinkedIn. Um, they have a podcast as well. You guys have to check out if you're looking for more conversations that are similar to this and you want to learn what it is to get dialed in as a salesperson, make sure you tune into Merchants of Change, which is uh, JR's podcast. JR, thanks, man. I hope we can do it again. Thank you, Derek. This was an awesome conversation.
Thank you for listening to another episode of the Sales Consultant Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, it would go a long way if you were to write a short review on the listening app of your choice.